put so much praise on body parts and, and, and aesthetics that we think that nobody will love us if we lose those things when in actual fact they're not the reason why people were drawn to us in the first place. And I'm on the roll. Welcome to this week's episode of The Wow, the podcast that will help you navigate your way through the world of adulthood and the uncontrollable forces of womanhood. I'm Georgina Beasley, your host, and in today's episode, I speak with health coach and exercise physiologist Sarah Liz King about a common illness that can affect women who have an unhealthy relationship with exercise and food called hypothalamic amenorrhea, also known as HA. I hope you enjoy today's episode and if you do, please remember to subscribe or click follow, leave a review, share it with your friends and if you haven't already, come join our community on Instagram at thewowpodcast underscore. Hi Sarah, welcome to the Wow Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this chat. The first question I ask all our guests is, could you share with us a little bit about yourself and your journey to becoming an exercise physiologist and health coach? Sure. So um, my name's Sarah King. I am an exercise physiologist and health coach by trade. But I certainly didn't expect that is where I would end up as a profession. I grew up loving animals and thought I would be a vet um, and always lived a really healthy lifestyle being outdoors and active. I did horse riding competitively for about oh, 16, 17 years of my life, like dreamt of going to the Olympics um, and then realized I probably needed a career to be able to support myself. So university was a good idea. And when I went to university, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I started studying nutrition, which at the time was of an interest to me, but for the wrong reason. So I became interested in nutrition because I had a very warped relationship with food. And that process actually kind of fueled that a little bit further. And I ended up having an eating disorder myself, um, which actually has really shaped where I am now in my profession as an EP, as someone that coaches other women through eating disorder recovery and HA recovery, which we are going to talk about today. But going through that recovery process myself made me realize I really wanted to help people and be in a profession that I could do that. And I knew that being a nutritionist wasn't a good idea for me at the time because I needed my own time to heal my own relationship with food. So I was like, I want to study exercise physiology. Wasn't really sure what that was all about, but came out of the degree and loved the fact that I got to help people move in order to manage their their health for the greater good. So different health conditions. Um, and in particular, I ended up falling into corporate health when I first left, which was a great learning experience, but left that after a couple of years because I just felt like there was more that I could do and more that I was interested in that I didn't really get a chance to focus on in the corporate health world. 
So started my own business, started focusing on women's health and in particular mental health. And I actually went back to work at the hospital where I had treatment myself um, as an exercise physiologist, helping those that had an eating disorder have a healthier relationship with exercise. And through that, I started to become more of a health coach in that respect and help people recovering from their eating disorder and from hypothalamic amenorrhea, learn the behaviors and actually change their mindset in order to get to the outcome they wanted, have that really flexible relationship with exercise, be a bit more free and at ease around food and realize that their body was not the sole thing that they had to focus on in their life and that they had so much more brain space once they had reached this point of just not focusing on controlling food and exercise so much. So in a roundabout way, that's kind of how I've ended up with my my business, which is very, very niche, but something I am so incredibly passionate about. And every single person I get to help, I feel really grateful for. That's so special. And I really admire what you do because you, I know personally that you do help so many women out there. It's a topic that I'm really excited to discuss. And I really am looking forward to what you have to say, because I think as women with social media and everything going around in the world, it, our relationship with food really changes as we develop and we grow up. And especially with exercise as well. I think these two parts of our lives can go through really good stages and really bad stages and that can happen to everyone at really different times it can happen in high school university later in life whatever that may be but I think it's a really complex issue that we don't really speak about a lot and also we don't really talk about some of the side effects or the the downfalls to having you know unhealthy relationships with exercise or unhealthy relationships with food and eating and so one of those is hypothalamic amenorrhea which i hope i'm pronouncing correctly <laughs> you are it's a hard word to say and i feel like the only way that i know how to say it easily and quickly is because i say it multiple times a day but you can just it HA. So it's hypothalamic amenorrhea or in a medical situation would be called functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. You can commonly see it written as FHA or HA. Mm, so today on the podcast, I'm going to be referring to it as HA just because it's a little bit easy and I'm, I'm going to avoid stuffing it up as much as possible. <laughs> so to dive straight in, Sarah, I would love for you to explain what HA is. Yeah. So uh, HA or hypothalamic amenorrhea is a form of secondary amenorrhea. So that essentially means that a woman will have her period and, um, you know, during normal puberty. And then for some reason, at some point it goes missing. So HA is a missing period that is six months or greater. So no cycle for six months or greater. And it is due to a combination of factors. But the main cause of hypothalamic amenorrhea is undereating, overtraining, and too much psychological stress. Um, and what this does is it 
down-regulates your hypothalamus. So your hypothalamus is in your brain. It is responsible for lots of different things, but one of the things it's most responsible for is kind of sensing how much free energy we have. And it does that in a lot of different ways. But if it senses that the body is under stress from, you know, not getting enough energy in, or again, overexertion, or psychological stress, which could be anything and everything these days in our crazy lives, it goes, oh, it's not really a safe time for reproduction. And it down-regulates this pathway called the HPA axis, so the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, um, and the HPO axis, so the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. So in essential, in essence, this means your body is not producing enough of a hormone called gonadotropin-releasing hormone, so GNRH. And that knock-on effect is that the body then doesn't produce enough FSH and LH. Those are the two hormones responsible for the different parts of our menstrual cycle. And then the knock-on effect is that we don't get enough estrogen and progesterone. So our menstrual cycle goes MIA. That's essentially what it is in a nutshell. And how common is this illness? So it affects anywhere between 3 and 5% of women. Um, according to the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, HA is responsible for about 20 to 35% of secondary amenorrhea cases. So if we're talking numbers, it's about 1.62 million women between the ages of 18 and 44 in the US. Not sure what the Australian numbers are. Um, And about 17.4 million women worldwide. So pretty common. And is it commonly misdiagnosed? Yeah. So it is a diagnosis of exclusion. So that basically means we need to figure out that there's nothing really bad going on before we end up at the diagnosis of HA. So there are lots of different reasons why someone's period may go missing. We need to make sure that the harmful ones aren't the reason why. So looking at things like uh, your physiology. So doing things like an ultrasound can be really helpful to make sure that there's structurally nothing going on that could impede the reason why you're having no menstrual cycle, no period. Then there's other things like pituitary problems. So um, pituitary tumors and thyroid problems can also be a reason why you your period goes missing. And then there's other things which are, um, people don't commonly think of, which are like malabsorption conditions. So celiac disease and uh, inflam- inflammatory bowel disease. Because both of those affect the gut and therefore affect the body's ability to absorb uh, enough energy, it can be a reason why obviously we end up with HA, but you have to figure out those things first before you can actually fix the HA because otherwise trying to get someone to eat more when they have this malabsorption problem isn't actually going to fix it. So you have to make sure that you go through all of these kinds of tests and then the main ones that you need to do are a thorough health history and blood work. So once you kind of have that, you have to paint a picture of what might be going on for a person. And if HA fits that picture, then that is the correct diagnosis. But yes, it is mis- it is very commonly misdiagnosed as well. 
And what are the five most common symptoms that are represented in females that are presenting with HA? So the top five symptoms of HA, obviously the first one is having a missed period or it doesn't even have to be a missed period, but a very, very light period. Some other symptoms are low libido, so loss of your sex drive. There's also symptoms synonymous with malnutrition or under eating. So feeling really low in energy, tired all the time, changes in appetite, dry hair, skin and nails, feeling cold all the time. And also symptoms that are synonymous with overtraining sometimes, so muscle or joint pain, overuse injuries, stress fractures, a decline in performance. Um, And then we also commonly see some, some mood disturbances, so an increase in depression and anxiety, disordered eating, Um, and body dissatisfaction. So those are the main ones that we're kind of dealing with symptom-wise in terms of like when we ask people questions, the things that they might be feeling. Uh, It can also be that there might have been recent weight loss and some psychological stress going on. But a lot of the other things that are, I guess, that make HA diagnosable are things that we have to see from a blood test. Moving on, I have some questions from our listeners for you. So the first one is from Shannon and she wanted to know how long is it diagnosed and how long is recovery? So I believe we've already touched on um, the diagnosis and we've gone through the different ways that you can do that. One of the most common being the blood test that you mentioned, but what about recovery? So recovery, the process of recovery, um, it actually depends on the severity of the HA. And by that, I don't mean how long you've had it for, but potentially how strong your disordered eating is, how much you're overtraining, how willing you are to quickly transfer into doing the necessary steps to reverse it and how much time it takes your body to heal. For people, I usually say roughly six months is the time that you should give it if you're really committing to that being your goal. Um, But for a lot of clients I see, they are at different stages of their recovery. Um, Some of them coming from a background of having a history, a long history of an eating disorder. And a lot of the time we have to tackle that first. And then to the point where the person becomes, have, becomes comes to a point where they have that healthier relationship with food, healthier relationship with exercise, and then they can really lean into what treatment entails. Because as much as recovering from HA is simple, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Mm. The next question is from Charlotte, and she wants to know how often this is misdiagnosed. I don't actually have a number that I can give you, but I can, te- I can say from personal experience, I commonly see a lot of people misdiagnosed as having PCOS when they actually have hypothalamic amenorrhea. And the reason for this is both of them have that common symptom of having a, a missed period or an irregular cycle. And because PCOS is much more common, So between 18, sorry, between eight and about 13% of women and GPs are often taught a lot more about PCOS management. It's what comes to mind when someone comes to see them that this could be the reason why their period has gone missing. 
Lastly, um, Kate wants to know, how do you deal with letting go of your former identity as a fit or healthy person? This is a tough one. And a lot of people that are experiencing HA come from a background of being really, really active and doing things that they thought were really healthy things um, by way of what society tells us in terms of eating lots of vegetables, exercising all all day, like every single day, Um, you know, eating like lower calorie foods because we think that these are the actual things that we're told are better for us. And so on top of that, we become praised for it. And so a lot of our identity then becomes wrapped up in the fact that so much of what we do and so much of what we're praised for are these behaviors. And if that becomes our perception of who we are, it can be really difficult to change that around. So I think it it's less to do with the fact that you just tell someone like, oh, just let go of the fact that you need to exercise less and you'll be fine. Like you'll be able to manage without it. I always think that the best way forward is to realize that there's a lot of different aspects of your life that gave you joy that you haven't been putting as much effort into because this took over a lot of your life. So while it's still a struggle for you to reduce your exercise and increase the amount of food that you need to eat and you feel like you're losing yourself, well, what else did you actually lose? Did you lose the ability to be a social? Were there hobbies that you just didn't engage in because all you were doing was exercising? What aspects of life can we add in so that less exercise doesn't feel so hard for you. And I think that helps balance kind of that wheel of life that we should have in terms of where we place our energy because we know if we, you know, it's the same with like investing, right? If you put all of your money into one company and all these shares, it's really risky, right? If something goes wrong, it's not going to be a really good outcome. So it's about going like, okay, like let's distribute our money in this situation, but, you know, our energy and our time amongst lots of different things. So when we reduce exercise, we we still have all this other stuff going on for us. And in terms of like the healthy aspect, well, the healthiest thing for your body is having a regular menstrual cycle because not having one has some huge health impacts. Hmm. So what are the health impacts of not having your menstrual cycle? Yes. So I always say that your menstrual cycle, your period is like your fifth vital sign. It is a monthly report card where your body is telling you, hey, things are good. Things are okay. Things are working. If you don't have a period, you most likely have low estrogen and low progesterone. Now, most of the health complications are to do with low estrogen in particular. So the first one that most people commonly know is that estrogen has an impact on our bone health. It helps make sure that we have a good balance of bone being broken down and bone being built at the same time so that we don't lose bone mass. We reach a good peak bone mass and we keep it for the majority of our lives so that when we hit menopause, then we get that normal natural decline in estrogen we still have a lot of bone there so that we don't fall into osteoporosis. 
Now, if you are someone with HA, you don't have a lot of estrogen floating around. And so the consequence of that is that there is more bone breakdown and less bone build up. So your risk of osteopenia, which is weakening of the bones and osteoporosis is much higher. The second thing is estrogen is protective of your heart. So there's cardiovascular impacts. Um, it is It keeps basically your arteries nice and flexible. Um, and we need that. Helps with nitric oxide production, all these things that are really helpful for our heart health. Those are the, bit, those are the two main ones. There are also impacts on obviously your mental health and um, your loss of libido. So I guess your sexual health as well. And the biggest one being your fertility. So an ovulatory infertility basically means no ovulation, no menstrual cycle. So if you're someone that's trying to get pregnant, it's pretty much impossible if you have this condition until you reverse it to actually fall pregnant. How does it work with contraception coming in on top of this and taking things like the pill or being on the IUD? So if you are taking the oral contraceptive pill or you're on some other form of hormonal contraceptive, it's very difficult to diagnose HA because those particular medications, they basically work to stop ovulation. So you're not really producing as many of your own hormones in that circumstance. So in that case, someone could be exercising quite significantly, not eating enough, they could fall into this low energy availability and HA could be lingering underneath the surface, but because we have those uh, synthetic hormones floating around, we don't actually know the, the real situation because they could be getting that monthly withdrawal bleed. So when you're on the pill or when you have an IUD inserted, the period that you get is not your own normal natural menstrual cycle. It's a withdrawal bleed from uh, the medication. So it can mask it. And the other thing to know is that going on the pill if you have HA doesn't fix it. It doesn't give you a real period and it also cannot protect your bones. So if you're someone that's thinking that this condition may be affecting you, it's really important to seek treatment, talk to your medical professional um, that you trust and really get to the bottom of what you think might be going on for you. Mm. Sounds like with all things that it's too good to be true if it's just, you know, a pill's going to fix all your problems. <laughs> I know. If only it is one of those things where hard work is required and some some big lifestyle changes. Mm. So talking about the treatment of HA, what are the common um, plans that you put into place to help people recover? Yes. So like I said before, um, one of the main things that happens is that under eating and overtraining, which uh, makes people fall into something that we call low energy availability, which is a calculation where we look at how much, how many calories per kilo of fat-free mass someone is taking in every day. And what we want to see is that it doesn't drop below this 30 calories per kilo. Um, of fat-free mass. Typically it does. Typically it's quite low for people. So we're aiming to reverse that. We want lots of free energy so that the body can upregulate all those processes that got 
basically suppressed because the body was like, hey, it's probably uh, reproduction's definitely not essential right now. We're being like chased by tigers and there's a famine going on and it's probably not safe. Like that's what your brain senses, right? It's like, no, no, like we got to shut this thing down. So eating more is very essential and you need to eat quite a lot. So like the minimum recommendation is 2,500 calories for most women and it can be significantly more if someone is recovering from an eating disorder and needing to to gain weight as well. Um, So that's very individual and really important to work with someone who's qualified and can give you the right advice based on your personal circumstance. Second thing, reducing exercise. So really reducing the intensity, reducing the volume of exercise that you're doing. Um, High intensity training in particular has a direct negative impact on LH um, and also increases your cortisol production, which is not good for hormone production, basically. Like your cortisol, not something we want floating around in excess. So it's a time where we try and really help the body just chill out, eat more, train less. You can still move, but in a really mindful, moderate way. And the last piece of the puzzle is managing the psychological stress that you might be experiencing in your life. So that might come from anything like financial stress to work stress to anything in between. Um, And because a lot of people with this condition typically have perfectionist tendencies or are involved in like sports where um, there's a lot of demand on them. So dancers or uh, sports where they have to make weight and where a thin appearance and a thin body is preferred. There's a lot of stress around what happens if I change. How am I going to manage? Will I still be able to perform? What will people think of me? And this is where having someone to talk to about your mindset and changing your belief systems around who you are is incredibly essential so that you can not only change your behaviors around eating and exercise, but know that you are a worthy human being, not because of what you do fitness-wise or what you eat food-wise, but because of who you are, like I've never hung out with someone because they had six pack abs. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> not what keeps me around. It's not like, mm. I'm like, I'm not going to go talk to their, their core. Like I'm talking to them as a person. We put so much praise on body parts and, and, and aesthetics that we think that nobody will love us if we lose those things when in actual fact, they're not the reason why people were drawn to us in the first place. Mm, Absolutely. And what are your top three tips for breaking these habits or these mindsets that you talk about? Yes. My first one is probably like a little bit of tough love. You cannot heal in the same place that once made you sick. That's something that I always say to so many people. So if there's an environment that is currently, I guess, allowing you to keep the behaviors you're trying to change, maybe you need to change the environment. So if going to the gym is making you fall into a rut of comparison and hang out with people that only do keto and never have their toast when they go to breakfast, it's going to be really hard for you to do those things if you constantly hang out with those people. Surround yourself with people that love bread and gelato 
and have a really relaxed relationship with food. Stop going to the gym for a little while and look at movement in a different way. See if you can do something that you've never done before. So go out for a coastal walk or do a yoga class or even if you're taking some complete time off the gym, learn to move your body just for fun. Chuck some music on, dance around your house or your apartment. Remember that you cannot heal in that same place that first made you fall into these behaviors that made you unwell. My, I guess my second tactic would be stop doing, can I swear on here? Yes, you can absolutely swear. (laughs) Stop doing stupid shit with food. So just because (laughs) other people are doing weird shit with their food doesn't mean that you need to. Don't put cauliflower in your oats or grate zucchini into everything or think that like zucchini noodles or pasta. Use the real deal. Uh, And that can be the hardest thing to stop doing because so many people are fixated on having these like huge, a huge volume of food in terms of vegetables and fruits and all these really low calorie things, but they actually need the energy density from nuts and seeds and healthy fats and good quality carbohydrates and protein and not just like super lean protein, but like protein that has natural fats in it. And learning that is one thing and doing it is another. So the first step is to unlearn all the stuff that you thought to be true about food. The second is to put new practices into place, which are healthful for your body. So psychological stress is probably one of the hardest ones to tackle because a lot of people are like, oh, I don't have, I don't have stress. And then we dig a little bit deeper and what typically tends to be the case is that we're always on the go and we're always doing any, everything and that there is no white space. There's no downtime. And there's no way that your body can start to feel relaxed if you don't give it a chance or a space or a time to relax. So my last tactic is creating some white space in your week and learning that, is, that there is a difference between laziness and rest. Rest is productive, but it doesn't make you lazy. Just because we've glorified being busy as a society doesn't mean that it's correct. Doesn't mean that that's the way that we should live. If you look at our primal ancestors, they weren't doing all day long. They did the things they needed to keep themselves alive, but then they let themselves be. So remembering that you're a human being and not a human doing and allowing yourself to have rest is actually key. Mm. Lastly, as we come to the end, I have a few quick last questions for, for you, Sarah, and one of which is can you recommend three reasons why it's important to have a healthy relationship with food and exercise? Yes, I love this question. Um, Food is more than just calories, and I think we often forget that. It's something that brings us together. It's something to celebrate with. It's something that we sometimes commiserate with when people pass away. It's a glue, a social glue, and having a good relationship with food allows us to enjoy those experiences and make memories and be with people that we love. Um, 
in a relaxed way and if we're always really anxious around food it can really detract from being present in those situations in terms of a healthy relationship with food sorry with exercise you need to know that exercise is more than just burning calories it's like the last reason you should do it you need to know that a run can just be for fun and a rest day can be just as productive and guilt-free and that neither one is better than the other because your body can exist and is not something that you have to micromanage like uh, your human calculator. It's just something that we do because it adds to our health, isn't something that we need to kind of, uh, we don't build our day around exercise if that makes sense. Exercise should be part of our day and not vice versa. And I think both of those kind of are building up to the the real main reason why it's important to have this healthy relationship with food and exercise, and that's to take up the appropriate amount of space in your head. If food and exercise is taking up a significant portion, it can often push things like our passions, our purpose, things we value to the side. Uh, and we lose that. We lose sight of what's really important to us and rediscovering what really is important to us and giving food and exercise just the amount of space it really needs can be really freeing because then you have so much energy and freedom and brain space to live the life that you imagined. And I think that is one of the most beautiful things to see in people as they start to recover. Mm. And can you recommend a motto or quote when it comes to eating disorder recovery that you live by? You don't need to be at your lowest to get help. And that means physically or mentally. Everyone, if they feel their life is being impacted by disordered eating or an eating disorder, it doesn't have to be a clinical diagnosis. You deserve help and you deserve that free life that I just spoke about. So don't ever be afraid to reach out and seek for that, that assistance because you definitely deserve it. And then the second motto would be, no matter how much you ate yesterday, you still need to eat today. I think that's my motto. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, finally, Sarah, could you tell us a little bit about your business and your podcast and how we can follow you? Sure. So my business, um, so my business is basically my name. I am on Instagram at Sarah Liz King. My website is also the same, www.sarahlizking.com. I offer group coaching for hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery. So essentially small groups of women um, going through an eight-week course together that is very much supported by me on a one-to-one basis. So they get private messages with me every day um, and with some group coaching and a Facebook group and all evidence-based resources to help you get your period back naturally. And then the second is that I also provide one-to-one coaching for eating disorder recovery and HA recovery for those that prefer, um, I guess, a more tailored approach to their recovery if they have a little bit more healing to do. And then my podcast, how fun are podcasts? (laughs) 
So my podcast is called Holistic Health Radio. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, And we do a mix of episodes. A lot of it is about body image, eating disorders, HA recovery. And then we also have some special guest episodes where we talk about anything and everything, but a lot of it is related to those topics as well as having a healthy balance with food and exercise and your body. So those are the main places you can get in touch with with me and the best way to follow me is obviously on Instagram um, just at Sarah Liz King. Fantastic I'll drop all the links to Sarah's podcast business Instagram all of the above in the show notes so make sure you go check them out but otherwise Sarah thank you so much uh, I've learned a lot today and I'm very excited uh, to yeah to just be more aware of I guess, the different things that can happen in the female body. So thank you for coming on and sharing so much information with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Wow. If you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah, then I recommend scrolling back through and taking a look at my episode with Lauren Curtin about periods. I release new episodes every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe and tune in next week. Otherwise, you can come follow me on Instagram at thewowpodcast underscore for more updates. Lastly, just a friendly reminder that the information shared in this podcast is general advice only and does not take into account your personal situation or needs. Where appropriate, please consult a professional first.